Titus chapter 3. We are very near <clears throat> the end of our journey through the book of Titus. We're going to read part of the ending of Titus today, and then we'll finish up next week with this book. As we saw last week, one of the main emphases of Titus is the grace of God. And last week we saw how the mercy that God has shown us as we were sinners, disobedient, led astray by various passions, passing our days in envy and malice. While we were like this, God showed us mercy in Christ Jesus. Because God is merciful, and we saw that because God has shown us this mercy, we are in turn called to turn and extend that same mercy towards those who don't know God, who reject God, who are even enemies of God, just like we once were. In a book that is all about the grace of God at work, it would be a great place to end the letter. Right? Paul Why didn't you end the letter there on a positive note? What is profitable? What is good? Paul does not end there, but he continues writing to Titus because those things that Paul was saying, how grace works to produce in us godliness, requires that Paul address this issue of discipline. So that's where we're going to be today. Titus chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Let's read the text now. Titus 3, verses 8 to 11, says this. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So why end a letter that's all about the grace and mercy of God this way? Why end it on this theme? I think we can see the answer to that if we ask ourselves how we generally handle conflict and how we generally handle divisive matters. How in the Midwest do we handle the potential for these kind of things when we gather at holiday celebrations like Thanksgiving or Christmas? What's the rule? No talking about politics, right? No talking about religion. Don't bring those up at a family dinner with extended family. Because you know what's going to happen. It's going to blow up in your face, right? We avoid talking about divisive matters with family over the holidays. Because we don't want our Christmas to go like that, right? But all of us, I'm sure, have that crazy uncle who stirs the pot, right? Or we are that crazy aunt or uncle who stirs the pot. All of us have seen family situations go a little haywire. When someone stirs the pot and brings up something, you don't have to throw a rock very far these days to find something divisive, right? It's easy to bring up these topics, even accidentally, 
And what do we do then? Some of us who like that kind of thing jump into the fray. And those of us who don't try to find somewhere to hide. We see in the way we handle it in our families a microcosm of how we tend to handle controversial matters and conflict. But when we gather with the church family, we're called to handle these things differently. We're called to show the grace of God and how the grace of God is at work in our lives, even in the midst of conflict and even in the midst of discipline. And so Paul wants Titus to be able, even when things go awry in church relationships, to be able to still maintain commitment to the grace of God and demonstrating the grace of God, how the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ changes us and moves us towards godliness and good works. So today we will see that contrary to grace or mercy being opposite of discipline, grace actually works through discipline. We'll see Paul lay out two threats to the church. In verse 9, we'll see this threat of unprofitable disagreements that threaten the sound doctrine of the church. And then in verses 10 and 11, we'll see the threat of divisive people that threaten the unity and witness of the church. And we'll see how Paul directs Titus, and then by extension through the word of God, us, how to deal with these kind of threats. So let's take them one at a time. First, verse 9, avoid unprofitable disagreements, Paul says. Verse 9 says this, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. Why? For they are unprofitable and worthless. It's not very hard to figure out what Paul's saying there. Avoid these unprofitable things, right? Avoid unprofitable disagreements. He names four different kinds. And he's just giving examples here. Foolish controversies. When he's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he says, these foolish controversies, what they do is they breed quarrels. They breed fighting among God's people. These are controversial things that are foolish to bring up because the result is infighting. The second item he lists is genealogies. This is not Paul giving you permission to skip the genealogies in your yearly Bible reading plan. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying those are unprofitable. What the Jews were doing in Crete is they were developing complex mythologies around the genealogies ideas of the backstories behind these different people that they saw in the old testament scriptures and they were making a big deal out of which ones you follow and which ones you're committed to it's somewhat somewhat i think similar to the catholic church's emphasis on different saints throughout church history and praying to different saints and those kind of things the jews were doing things like that taking genealogies and taking removing them from what they were meant to do just point to God's promise of an offspring in Christ and actually twisting them. They were unprofitable to discuss and disagree. They led to speculation rather than stewardship, as Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1. Then he lists in verse 9, dissensions. 
This is just strife. This is conflict. This is the same kind of strife talked about in 1 Corinthians 3, when Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church, telling them, I wanted to feed you meat, but all you could handle was milk because you're of the flesh. One says, I follow Paul. One says, I follow Apollos. This is the kind of conflict that comes from partisanship in the church. Dissensions that breed strife. And the last item he lists in verse 9 is quarrels about the law. This is probably the most potentially confusing one for us because it could seem like, since we know that we are not under the law but under grace, we are not in the Old Testament but the New, this could seem like, and some even in church history have taken it to be, that Paul is saying, ignore the Old Testament. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying it's not worth reading and discussing these kind of things. He's talking about quarrels about the law that are similar to the way the Pharisees quarreled with Jesus about the law. In Bible study on Wednesday, we went through John 8, the first part of John 8, and talked about the story of the Pharisees bringing to Jesus a woman caught in adultery. And they were saying, the law says we're supposed to stone her. What are we supposed to do? They were quarreling with Jesus about the law. And John records in verse 6 that they did this. They brought this woman to Jesus, not because they were interested in the law, but because they were trying to trap Jesus, pitting him against the law of Moses and trying to trick him. It was a quarrel about the law that was actually using the law in an unlawful way. Paul even says in 1 Timothy 1, right, as we saw when we went through it, that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So this isn't an admonition against talking about the law of God, specifically the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. This is talking about using the law inappropriately. All of these four kinds that Paul mentions have in common the potential to distract from or distort the sound doctrine of the church. They all threaten the sound doctrine of the church. Disagreements such as these are unprofitable because they distract from or distort sound doctrine. And furthermore, because they do that, guess what they don't lead to? They don't lead to godliness, which is Paul's concern in the book of Titus, in the letter to Titus, isn't it? Let the grace of God work in you to produce godliness. And these things are not the grace of God and they don't produce godliness. So Paul says, avoid them. But sometimes in the church, out of a desire to preserve unity and avoid disagreement, we come to the conclusion that we should never talk about doctrine because doctrine is always divisive, right? We're always going to find someone who disagrees, but that's not what Paul is saying. This is not an admonition to Titus to avoid talking about all doctrine because in fact, some disagreements are profitable. Some are unprofitable. That's what he's saying. Avoid those, but some are profitable. Paul even says in the beginning of Titus, when he's writing to Titus about elders, he says elders are supposed to be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to do what? Refute those who contradict it. When there's a disagreement about sound doctrine, elders are called to be able to disagree profitably, to be able to fight for sound doctrine. And by extension, the church is called to do that. Disagreements have also shown themselves to be profitable in church history. 
a vast majority of confessions and creeds that we have from church history came about as a result of profitable disagreement. See, what happened is as, as years passed after Christ had ascended into heaven and the early church was reading the letters of Paul and reading the Gospels and reading the Old Testament and trying to figure out what it meant to follow Christ now after his ascension, disagreements arose in the church about the nature of God and what Scripture taught. One of those disagreements led to the Council of Nicaea, where we get our Nicene Creed, articulating foundational truths that the Bible teaches, articulating sound doctrine. Another disagreement led to the Council of Chalcedon, where we get the Chalcedonian definition. If you've never heard of that, look it up. It's wonderful. Basically, the issue was, how do we understand that Jesus is both man, down to the marrow, and divine? How do we understand the two natures of Christ? And the Chalcedonian definition draws a box and says, outside of this box, Jesus is not this, not this, not this. We're not really sure what he is, but he's both man and God. We just don't know how that works. We got this as a result of disagreement. Profitable disagreement within the church. Profitable disagreement always defends and promotes sound doctrine. The core truths of the gospel. The sound doctrine that is profitable because what does it do? It leads to godliness. It changes God's people because sound doctrine preserves for us the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It shows us that sinners like us, enemies of God, can be forgiven because while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Because some disagreements are unprofitable and some are profitable, Paul says in verse 9, avoid the unprofitable ones, right? And in verse 8, he says, insist on these things, which are sound doctrine. Insist on profitable discussion but avoid unprofitable disagreements how do we do that then in the church what does that look like i think it can be helpful for us to think about that in the context of a modern example some of you might be familiar with the worship wars quote unquote the idea being churches disagree unprofitably in many senses about what the worship should look like Should you sing only hymns or should you sing only contemporary choruses or should you have a blend of both? Should you have drums? Should you have other instruments? Those kind of things. And people get very passionate about their particular conclusions. This is an unprofitable disagreement within the church. This often does not lead to increased godliness, but this leads to conflict. This leads to distraction at the very least, from the core truths of the gospel. So, how can we navigate something like that? I think Paul shows us a couple things. In order to avoid unprofitable discussion and insist on what is profitable, we must have a disciplined focus in our church on what is profitable. Titus 3, 8, I'm going to read it again. Paul says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. He has just laid out, right, in verses 4 to 7, 
the mercy of God in the gospel, the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit, the justification that we have in Christ so that we can be heirs of the hope of eternal life. This is what you need to focus on. And if we are not disciplined in our focus, we will get distracted all over the place by various controversies. We need disciplined focus. And one of the ways we can have disciplined focus in the church is through what's called theological triage. This is the idea that not every hill is a hill to die on. Not every doctrine is the most important, central, absolute, must-have doctrine. It is legitimate even for Christians to disagree on things. One example would be baptism. We are a Baptist church. We believe in believers' baptism. But Christians disagree on that, and some hold to paleo-baptism, baptizing infants. And that is okay. That is fine. Theological triage would say that is not necessary to argue over. We can both be Christians and hold those. Theological triage would say, what is the importance of our view of worship? For example, hymns versus choruses. Can we sing a chorus or do we only need to sing hymns? We sang both this morning. The new song that Steve mentioned is from Sovereign Grace, written in 2004. And many of the, uh, the others were hymns, older songs. We forget that hymns were once new too. They were once the popular music of the day. We elevate this. Theological triage would teach us to say what is most important. What is less important. We need to have a disciplined focus on the most important, the most profitable things. Our statement of faith as a church is a good guide for us on what is most important, what is most profitable for us. We do not have any language in our statement of faith on what the worship should look like, right? We have language describing the word of God and describing the Trinity and describing how we come to salvation in Christ, what regeneration looks like, those kind of things. We do not have in our statement of faith Things that are not unimportant, but certainly less important, less central to the gospel. So we need a disciplined focus on what is profitable. We also need a disciplined response when unprofitable things filter in. In other words, when those foolish controversies, when the genealogies, when the dissensions, when the quarrels about the law, whatever it looks like now for us, when the worship wars are exploding... We need a disciplined response to how we respond to these kind of things. This is what Paul calls for in Titus 2. When he's saying, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And what's the word that he uses most frequently? Self-control. Right? Self-discipline. Self-control to focus on what is godly. I think there's two ways that we are helped towards this kind of disciplined response, this kind of self-control. One of them... Paul says in Titus 2.15, he tells Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. He's saying that to Titus, an elder of the church, exhort and rebuke, let no one disregard you. One of the ways we can have a disciplined response to the temptation to get embroiled in foolish controversies is through submission to the legitimate authorities in our church. In our church, that would be elders, right? Elders are called to teach and defend, to exhort and rebuke. 
And when we're tempted to get in the weeds on issues that the elders have said, you know what, this isn't worth getting in the weeds on. This isn't central to the gospel. This isn't something that's going to be important for us to discuss as a church. You should listen to that. We should listen to that. This is why it's so important to care about who your elders are because you need to appoint qualified men for elders and then listen to them. Trust them. That's one gift that God has given you so you don't have to wonder, is this issue important enough that I need to... You can have help. But not just that. We can also have a disciplined response when those things arise by obeying the scriptural exhortation to count others more significant than ourselves. You see, it, it takes two to tango, right? And so if, if unprofitable disagreements are unprofitable because they produce this conflict in the church, which distorts or distracts sound doctrine, and you're not willing to engage in those arguments, it'll fizzle out really quickly. Right? We are called in Philippians 2 to do this. Listen to how, what Paul writes in Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the mind of Christ, right? We saw that when we went through Philippians. This is what we're called to have. And if you have that mind, you will not be snared into these unprofitable disagreements. You will have this disciplined response that we are called to have. Romans twelve eighteen says, as far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all people. Right? That's what we're called to do. So if you're living that way, this kind of thing will fizzle out really fast, most of the time. Now you might be wondering, and I think it's an appropriate wonder, this is what my kids would wonder with this exhortation. Well, does that mean the loudest person wins? And whoever, whoever isn't willing to do that gets their way? And we just are doormats? That's not what we're called to do. That's not what Paul is saying. That's why he goes into verses 10 and 11, because some people will continue to stir the pot and are by nature divisive people. And he tells us how to handle them in Titus 3, 11 and t- or 10 and 11. He says this, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Paul is saying some people are divisive by, by nature. He said the person who stirs up division. The New American Standard Bible translates this as factious person. A factious person, which is a, is a fun word to say and it sounds strange. It's a person who loves faction creating. This is the same word that was used to describe the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their love of separating and dividing into groups based on preferences, based on interpretations, and things like that. This is someone who loves being divisive. Why would they be like this? What leads to this kind of person? I think it's the opposite of what we need to have in order to avoid unprofitable disagreements, right? Because they get embroiled in unprofitable disagreements. And so they have an undisciplined focus, This is someone who has their hobby horse that they always talk to you about, right? In in Crete, for Titus, it was genealogies. For us, it might be worship styles or time of service, or it could be 
it could be doctrinal, it could be obscure, um, or doctrines that are less important to divide on, like is it pre-mill, post-mill, on-mill, those kind of things. It could be whatever it is, it's a hobby horse that continues to drive the person to the distraction and neglect of sound doctrine, of the core of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a person, the divisive person, who believes every hill is a hill to die on. Right? This matters so much that I must continue to push it. I'm sure you guys have all met the person. You've probably been the person at one time or another. I know I have. When I first came to understand the doctrines of grace and Calvinism, I definitely was a cage stage Calvinist. Which, if you don't know, is someone you should put in a cage when they first come to the knowledge of God's sovereignty because they're too aggressive towards those around them. It's an undisciplined focus or an overemphasis on something. This is also someone who binds the conscience of others. See, Titus warns about the, or Paul warns about this to Titus in chapter 1. When he says, the, these, these people, you're supposed to rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith... Not devoted to Jewish myths, that's the genealogies, or to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. See, what was happening is some would come to a conclusion, I must do this to be holy, or I can't do this and be holy. And it's not in God's word, it's not according to God's word, but they would give these commands and bind others' consciences. This person has lost focus on sound doctrine, lost focus on the word of God, and they insist instead on what is unprofitable. Not only do they have an undisciplined focus, but they are also themselves undisciplined. They lack self-discipline. This is what Paul was calling for in Titus 2, right? This self-discipline. They lack this self-control. He writes that this person, in verse 11... Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. This person is warped. They have turned away from the truth. And where do they turn? They turn in on themselves. This is the kind of person that is quarrelsome for the sake of being quarrelsome. They love to win. I confess, I have these tendencies that I have to curb because I like fighting in many ways. And if left unbridled, if not disciplined, it would go out of control and it would breed all kinds of division. Because I would just be fighting for the sake of fighting. This is the kind of behavior that this divisive person has. They love to win or they love to create factions so that they can feel on the inside. Right? I'm sure if you went through middle school, you know what this is like. Creating an in-crowd and an out crowd, and it's better to be the one creating the in crowd, because then you're in. If you're the one missed out on the opportunity to get in, and you're on the outside, it's no fun. A divisive person, a a factious person, loves to create these groups so that they can be sure they are on the in. This kind of person is arrogant. They reject authority and love to be right. They're ultimately proud, right? Think about the kind of pride it would take. Think about the kind of pride it would take to be so sure of yourself, so sure of your position, 
so sure that the thing that you care about the most is the most important thing, that you are willing to divide the bride of Christ, that you are willing that you are willing to harm those for whom Christ died, those for whom God paid the blood of his own son. First Peter exhorts us to fear because of the price that was paid for us. So imagine the kind of pride that it takes to be willing to ignore that. That's what's in the heart of a divisive person that Paul warns Titus against. It's someone who has not been humbled by the mercy of God. Therefore, it is merciful for God to humble that person. And that's what Paul tells Titus to do. Since they have not been humbled by the mercy of God, Titus and the church at Crete, be merciful to them by humbling them through discipline. That's what Paul is calling for when he calls for discipline here in verse 10. He says, first of all, that we're supposed to warn divisive people. We discipline by warning, right? When he says in verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. There's a warning process. Paul is drawing on the discipline process in Matthew, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, but I want to read for us. Matthew 18, 15 to 17. Jesus says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's what Paul is drawing on. That's the teachings of Jesus that Paul is drawing on and alluding to here when he says, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. We would be wrong, though, to read this text as prescribing a very narrow three strikes and you're out policy, right? I warned you once, I warned you twice, you need to get out of here. Right? That's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about a process that we go through as elders, as fellow church members, as the church as a whole, when you tell it to the church, a process of pursuing and warning errant sinners. This is merciful. This is, this is warning someone when they are straying from God. It's an extension of God's mercy. This requires tremendous wisdom and self-control, right? Especially on the part of elders who are often the first to be aware of or the first to need to confront this kind of divisive person. If an elder is arrogant, quick-tempered, what are they going to do? We're going to go to someone who, who makes us upset, who says something we don't like, who contradicts us in a way we don't find pleasant. And we're going to say, you're being divisive. And then we're going to warn them once and twice and kick them out. Right? That's why Paul says to Titus, it is so important that elders are not to be quarrelsome. Elders are not to be arrogant, quick-tempered, any of that. Instead, they're to be lovers of good. They're to be sound in the faith. They're to be firm in doctrine, knowing the grace and mercy of God so that they can extend it to others. 
This is also why Jesus calls for the whole church to be involved in this process. Because we as a body have an opportunity to exhort one another and to warn one another when we are erring from the grace of God. And we as a body have an opportunity to be able to check when an elder gets hot under the collar. So Paul says, warn them as an extension of the mercy of God. The posture of this kind of warning is love, right? The goal of discipline when Paul writes in T- Titus 1, he says, rebuke them. Why? So that they may be sound in the faith. The goal and desire is to produce the soundness of faith, to bring back the errant person. Discipline is loving because even God disciplines. And he only disciplines those he loves. We read about in Hebrews 12. So we're called to have that same kind of posture and that same kind of aim. Of restoration and unity among God's people. Sometimes. As Jesus alludes to in Matthew. Discipline is listened to. Warnings are heeded. And you gain a brother. And you rejoice. That someone who was walking away. Someone who was sowing this kind of division. Hurting God's people. Has stopped. Has come back. Has reconciled. That's the goal. That's the desire. That doesn't always happen. Some, it seems often it doesn't happen, at least at this stage of discipline. So often we have to go to the next step, which Paul says, right? After, verse 10, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Some translations say reject this person. It's the same kind of, same kind of concept. This is Paul calling for Titus and the church when the divisive person is unrepentant, refusing to heed the warnings to excommunicate them, to remove them from membership in the church. This doesn't mean we never share the gospel with them. This doesn't mean we never relate to them, trying to reach out in love, trying to bring them back. But this does mean that they are removed from the church, removed from membership. This feels mean. Right? This feels contrary to a God who says, merciful to sinners. Isn't the church a place for sinners? Yes. That's why Paul says, even in verse 11, he ends with this. He is self-condemned. In other words, this is a sinner who is refusing the mercy of God. Who is refusing the hand of grace extended to him or her. This is a sinner who is refusing to heed the warnings that God has mercifully given and instead reject those and condemn themselves. Believe it or not, people refuse God's mercy, right? Many of us, before we came to know Christ, were refusers of God's mercy. It wasn't that we hadn't had mercy extended to us. It was that we refused to accept it. So, we see in this text that discipline is not contrary to the grace of God, but is an extension of the grace of God. It is part of God's merciful hand extended to sinners. God wants to extend mercy to sinners. We saw that last week. God is all about 
being merciful. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It flows out of his character. It overflows from who he is. Because he is all about that. And because the way he has chosen in his sovereign wisdom to extend his mercy through sinners, to sinners is through other sinners. Saved by grace, changed by grace, grace at work in their lives. Because this is the way God does it. He disciplines those he loves to produce in them the kind of changed lives, the kind of godliness, the kind of humility that can extend that same mercy to others. It is humbling to have God discipline us, but it is also merciful. So it is not contrary to grace, but grace, in fact, works through this discipline as the church gathers together. I want to close today with reading a short passage from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, where he captures this idea that we are all involved in extending the mercy of God to one another through discipline. He says this, Reproof is unavoidable. God's word demands it when a brother falls into open sin. The practice of discipline in the congregation begins in the smallest circles. Where defection from God's word in doctrine or life imperils the family fellowship and with it the whole congregation. In other words, when this kind of division stuff happens, when someone is divisive, when they're focused on unprofitable disagreements. When this happens, quote, the word of admonition and rebuke must be ventured. Nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. It is a ministry of mercy, an ultimate offer of genuine fellowship when we allow nothing but God's word to stand between us, judging and succoring. Then it is not we who are judging. God alone judges and God's judgment is helpful and healing. That's what God intends to do with discipline, help and healing to preserve the unity and the witness, the godliness of his people so that we can truly testify that God is merciful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The only way we can do that is if God does it in us. And one of the ways he does it is through discipline. Praise the Lord for his wisdom. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you do not leave us in our sin. That you do not look at us dead in our trespasses and say, man, you got to figure it out. We are thankful that while we were yet enemies, you sent your son Jesus to die for us. While we were actively refusing your mercy, you extended your hand of mercy out to us. And we're grateful that you didn't leave us there. But that through the sovereign work of your spirit in our hearts, you soften us to the mercy that you extended. You brought us into the knowledge of Christ. You shined in our hearts with your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. We're grateful for that precious gift, God. We pray that you would help us be bold when we need to. To contend for sound doctrine. And to be often 
humbly counting others more significant than ourselves, giving up on our preferences and our desires for the sake of others in the body. Help us, Lord, preserve the unity. Show that you who united Jew and Gentile with the blood of Christ can certainly unite a bunch of Midwesterners. Lord, help us show this, we pray. That's our desire to, to show this as a, as a testimony to your glory, to the efficacy of the gospel, as a testimony that grace really, truly works. It's only by your spirit we can do this, God. So we, we plead the blood of Christ. We ask for your help, and we trust you. Let's walk forward in grace, we pray. Amen.